If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What happened to you if you were captured in battle in the Middle Ages? Well, that's the subject of today's conversation. Medieval historian Remy Amball has investigated the experiences of prisoners of war during the Hundred Years' War, a series of conflicts that were fought in the 14th and 15th centuries. Our content director, David Musgrove, put in a call to him to find out more. Today's interview uh, is going to be a good one. Uh, I'm joined by Dr Remy Omboul, who is a lecturer in medieval history at the University of Southampton. His work has focused on politics and ethics of war in the 14th and 15th century in France, England and Burgundy. And one of the most illuminating lines of his research is on prisoners of war in the Hundred Years' War. He's written a book on the topic, uh, which is called Prisoners of War in the Hundred Years' War, Ransom Culture in the Late Middle Ages, along with several journal articles on it too. And that is the subject we're going to chat about today. So, Remy, thank you for joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm perfectly fine. Thank you. Thank you for Good. having me. Right. So the first thing we need to do before we can start talking about this subject is, is just to get a little bit of a sense about the, uh, the topic we're talking about. So could you please just give us a super quick sketch of the Hundred Years' War? Just give us the dates of, of uh, start and finish and, and a little bit of context about what's going on. So the, the, the Hundred Years' War uh, is uh, one of the longest conflicts uh, in uh, history, and it lasts actually more than 100 years, 116 years. Uh, it starts in 3037 and ends in 4053. Uh, at the origin uh, lies two overlapping issues. Uh, one is called the feudal issues, which is a, a problem of land that the English king holds uh, in France uh, since the Norman uh, conquest of England in 1066. These lands are held as fiefs, so uh, the English king is also a vassal of the French king for the lands he holds in, in France, and these lands are the Duchy of Aquitaine. And uh, uh, this become, is, has becoming a, a, pr a problem between the, the two kings uh, because uh, the French king has a, 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 a power of justice over the Duchy of Aquitaine. So basically can interfere in the business of the English king ruling Aquitaine in France. Um, this has been an issue for uh, during the 50 years before the Hundred Years' War and has raised several uh, uh, conflicts uh, which had not lasted. They, they stopped quite, uh, they, they were 
quite short conflict. Uh, what happened with the Hundred Years, uh, Hundred Years War, is that uh, uh, there is this overlapping issue of the, uh, the dynastic issues. The English king uh, claims uh, the throne of France and he uh, makes this claim on the basis of um, a, a claim he had uh, from his mother Isabella. So uh, he elevates uh, his status of rebellious vassal uh, of the French king as uh, a rival. He puts himself on an equal footing, claiming uh, that he is the rightful king of France. So this is the, the origin of the war and the reason why it lasts 100 years, because once he has claimed to be the king of France, he could not possibly settle on anything less than being the king of France. So it's usually divided into phases. The first phase, the 14th century phases, is made of big English expeditions uh, in France. Uh, they are called the chevauchés, these horse-riding reds in France. And this gives place in the 15th century to more a war of conquest and settlement. And uh, uh, the most striking uh, uh, treaty is the Treaty of uh, Troyes, which uh, makes the, the English king, Henry V, uh, becoming heir of the French uh, kingdom. So, uh, as I said, it's becoming a, a more a war of uh, a conquest and pacification of a kingdom of France which belonged to the English king. Uh, it will end up, and all ends in, in uh, the mid-15th century, so uh, Charles VII uh, resumed war in 1449, and the reconquest lasts about five years, and the English are eventually expelled from the Duchy of Aquitaine and the, uh, the Duchy of Normandy, which uh, they had conquered 30 years before. Okay, thank you. So, uh, good uh, a good potted history there. It's clearly uh, a complicated story of lots and ups and downs, lots of famous battles, uh, Poitiers, Cressy, Agincourt, the Treaty of Troyes, as you said, in 1420. Um, so, lots of undulating uh, fortunes for both sides. Um, and, and there were a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of bloody episodes um, uh, within this conflict. Now, what we want to talk about today um, is is prisoners of war and uh, and their role and place in in this story. Uh, you've done some very interesting research on it, so let's start off by talking about um, some of the examples. You've identified uh, numerous examples. I think over sixty um, of people who were taken prisoner in battle during this this long conflict. Um, and your research has unearthed the first documented example of an English prisoner of war from 1357. Uh, is that right? Um, not totally. I mean, the okay. <laughs> uh, the the number of uh, prisoners that I've uh, um, uh, found out is the number of prisoners of war which are explicitly called uh, prisonniers de guerre. So the French phrase prisonniers de guerre. Uh, this doesn't mean that there are no more prisoners of war. There are quite a lot of prisoners of war. It's just that the phrase originates. Uh, uh, from the, the Hundred Years' War. And more specifically, towards the beginning, you alluded to it, the Battle of Poitiers in 1356. Uh, uh, it's where uh, it's the, the first mention of the prisonnier de guerre. So why it's interesting and important um, is that I started to trace this uh, origin of the French phrase because the French phrase also... Uh, uh, is uh, has modelled the English phrase and the Italian phrase as if it was spreading across Europe 
uh, uh, and it originate originating in in France. So it's becoming quite intriguing, interesting to see if the phrase is linked with the emergence of a new status. And it's what in my last part of my research, I try to study what can we learn from the origin of a French uh, of this French phrase. But the the thing I need to be careful when I say that because I when and it's quite a catchy title which uh, attract public attention to say the first prisoner of war which is misleading I haven't discovered the first prisoner of war uh, I have discovered maybe maybe somebody will find another reference earlier but I believe that I have firm ground to say that I have discovered the the origin of the phrase the first prisoner of war who is actually called prisonier de guerre so has the phrase prisonier de guerre attributed to him. Brilliant. That's that's very clear. Thank you. Um, so, just, just taking that back a bit. I mean, clearly there were prisoners of war um, before 1357, as you said. Pr- clearly, people were taken prisoner and captive during conflicts. Um, so, we we need to go back a little bit, I think, and try and understand. Is there, an, is there something different that's happening in the Hundred Years' War as opposed to the experience of people um, captured in conflict prior to the mid-14th century? Well, I think um, a yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, um, uh, the, the status of prisoner of war is uh, tightly associated with the practice of ransoming. And they, the, his status derives from the economic value of the prisoner. So he has rights because he has a value. And this is fundamental uh, to understand uh, the, this, uh, uh, the, the, the logic of the, uh, the ransom culture in that time. They, they are interlinked. And this originates, uh, uh, there are several studies about that, which place the origin of the ransoming culture uh, in the uh, 10th century, again in northern France, um, and uh, which has since spread with the aristocratic diaspora in Europe and uh, the conquest, the crusades, uh, uh, or the conquest of England, uh, and so forth. So it's this uh, uh, this status of prisoner of war through the ransoming uh, culture, through the fact that they have a value and they can be uh, set free through the payment of a ransom, uh, uh, has been associated with the uh, the most important element of chivalry. Uh, okay, so uh, it has uh, uh, spread and and um, uh, uh, in the Hundred Years' War, uh, it's becoming. Uh, we have evidence, and especially at the Battle of Poitiers, uh, of really big bulk of prisoners who are captured. So it's the number uh, of prisoners which makes the the, the difference. Uh, there are prisoners of war taken and ransomed within uh, Anglo-Norman conflicts before the Hundred Years' War between the 11th and the 14th century, but you have this bulk of prisoners taken in the Hundred Years' War. And was it your research may not uh, may not extend back beyond uh, beyond the 11th century, but presumably uh, when there were um, Vikings versus Anglo-Saxons and and there was a a sort of a Christian pagan element in yeah. conflict going on. Presumably, ransoming was less less of a thing there, and people were just enslaved and and had a very exactly exactly maimed, enslaved, killed. Uh, that's what was the, the the fate of prisoners of war, uh, the fate of prisoner if they were taken uh, before uh, this kind of, this rise of the ransoming culture, this rise of the ransoming culture. 
Okay, so this idea of the of sort of the rise of chivalry and 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 the chivalric idea, um, it's it's kind of it's it's part of this uh, sense of uh, civilizing the aristocracy, isn't it? That's that's the general trend that that historians have identified. Um, that it's it's part of just making uh, the life of the uh, aristocracy aristocratic classes in medieval Europe uh, slightly better um, and slightly less risky if they went to war. Is that is that a reasonable summation of where we're at? Yes, no, no, just absolutely right. Okay. So within that, then, that means that, that rules and laws have to be developed if that's going to be something that's, that, that's, a, that's a, a, of practical value. So um, at what point do we begin to see actual rules of, of, of engagement here that relating to, to prisoners of war? Is it from 1356 or are, are there things earlier than that? Well, you have uh, uh, the, the most formal uh, code is called the law of arms, which is uh, used by contemporaries. Contemporaries don't talk about laws of war, but they talk about the law of arms or in French, the droit des armes, in Latin, the jus armorum. Uh, uh, this, is, this is their law. And uh, um, you can see it already applies in the 12th, 13th century, um, but mostly the problem is a problem of sources. You don't know exactly, uh, you, we don't have much detail about them until uh, the, the 14th, 15th century, uh, where we have plenty of documentation, not only through narrative sources, but also through uh, legal suits, administrative records, financial records. They all mention this law of arms and give up actually some specifics about it. And it's quite fascinating to see that you have uh, uh, two t- t- tiers, two tiers uh, uh, in terms of the law of arms. You have the, the, the law of arms we talk about, you were talking about the civilization of uh, chivalry uh, in, in chronicle sources. We think, according to the law of arms, uh, such and such prisoner should be treated fairly, uh, have courteous prison, uh, should not be ransomed too highly. Uh, this is one picture in the chronicle. When you look now, and this is quite is fascinating about the 14th, 15th century, you look at these administrative records, you look at these legal suits. When they talk about the ransom of uh, the the law uh, on the law of arms, it's purely practical and pragmatic and self-interested. Uh, legal suits don't talk about uh, humanity, about uh, fair treatment. They talk about the claim, the right claim to the ransom of a prisoner. The disputes are over the ransom of prisoner. The disputes are over the ownership of prisoners. And there you have an amazing amount of rules uh, uh, according to which one needs to abide if you want to have this ownership of the prisoner. But the killing of prisoners in court is never blamed in terms you should not have, you are a Christian, they killed a Christian. It's debated in terms you need to compensate the person who prisoners, uh, who was the master of the prisoner. Okay, so if if the the rules and the laws are, as you say, entirely based on economy and, and economic and property ownership values, then um, presumably that means that um, the, the basis of them would apply to uh, an aristocratic person as much as a, a low-born archer. Okay, so yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the um, I, I I would not say that there is no 
principle or more civil principle about the law of arms. It's just that it's not discussed in the uh, uh, in, in the court cases, in the administrative. It's not the reality of war. Um, the Chronicle put a gloss on it. Uh, but I do have mentioned, you have sometimes mentioned about fair treatment uh, in other records. But uh, you're right. I mean, coming back to what you were saying, uh, this is these rules are in the records I've, you, I've been using. So I've been mainly concentrating, I've been gone out beyond the chronicle sources and too many uh, studies have been stuck with uh, these uh, narrative sources. When you go beyond, you see um, rules which spread beyond uh, the... The, the, the knightly community and especially in the 14th-15th century because at that time uh, the armies uh, uh, unrolled soldiers which were no more of knightly status uh, and so um, uh, you can see this practice of ransoming spreading lower down the, the social hierarchy of the army but this is a difficult issue also which needs to be thought out properly because you have one problem. If it's an economic value which is the basis of the status of the prisoner of war, you need uh, uh, the prisoner to be solvent, to, to be able to pay the ransom. So there are a lot of issues which can raise if you are uh, ransoming a, a lower-ranking soldier, an archer. So what I can't say, it's exactly how it works. What I can say it's that indeed they put something into places and what indicates that it's from the Aging, from Aging court and uh, in the 15th century, especially in the 15th century. Uh, you have, when you look at a uh, bulk of prisoners taken, you can see that the amount of the ransoms for the really the lower down of the hierarchy, you have uh, a, a scale of prices, uh, um, uh, the, the several occurrences of the same price uh, in in this bulk of ransoms you have, so that there is a kind of systematization of uh, I mean a system is put into place, so uh, uh, which you can assume it's the the prices are fixed according to some form of function the soldiers had in the army. Uh, when you go uh, higher up the hierarchy, you can see that there is no no such systematization. It's down to individual to individuals, uh, 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 a count, a barons, uh, uh, higher ranking knights. Don't, it's it's uh, negotiated individually and and estimated uh, individually the, the, their ransom. So based presumably on on what their their assets and their their chattels were worth, rather than on any martial ability it's not based on you know this guy was a, an amazing fighter so he's worth um twice as much as someone else it's, it's about how much money they've got back home to, to pay a ransom well um what the people what the captors think they are worth because mostly nobody knows even the king of france doesn't know exactly what are all the assets of his nobility so you can imagine the enemy so it's most about projection and what people imagine uh, as well you were talking about reputation reputation can play uh, can can have uh, uh, um, can contribute to increase the ransom, especially if you think that uh, uh, the king of France or a king or a high uh, a prince uh, will want to pay the ransom of the knight. So if the ransom, uh, if the knight is a very valorous and 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 has a big reputation, it can increase the amount of the of his ransom. So yes, so you have this. 
it's always a bit intriguing to, to wonder how on earth they can assess this amount, uh, uh, they make this estimate about the, the, the ransom of the soldier, uh, of, of the prisoner. And you can also imagine the amount of pressure that can be put on the prisoner to accept to pay a higher ransom. Okay. And uh, for these rules and laws to, to operate um, uh, sensibly, they, they must have had to have been applied equally on both sides, of on the French and English side. So did, was there an agreement that, that there was these laws were like a universal construct for, for both sides to operate under? Well, um, it's, you can talk about international law. Uh, uh, the law of arms, it's kind of, a, you, can, you can compare that to a, a private uh, uh, international international law, uh, which apply to the knights and also to the law, lower down the hierarchy. So uh, yes, and you can see that uh, through uh, ordinances of war as well, uh, which are used by the uh, the kings when they go to war, and uh, which are uh, uh, cried before a battle. These the, the set the rules, and the, you can see that the rules. Uh, uh, are comparable to uh, the, the the treaties uh, on chivalry and and on on the way to wage war. Uh, they are comparable. They 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 are inspired by the customs. So they, there is uh, they, there is a, a, a consensus that a tacit consensus that the same rules apply. And I think the best regulator for. Uh, taming violence is uh, the principle of retaliation. You know that, uh, and this is argued sometimes uh, uh, in, in sources, is that if you kill uh, a prisoner, the enemy will kill his prisoner too. And I think this is a principle which is not just about the Hundred Years' War, but in terms of uh, uh, conducting war, it's uh, much bigger and uh, much more important, this principle in setting the rules. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But you also read about prisoners uh, being uh, thrown into dungeons, pits, being fettered, shackled, tortured. Um, uh, but you don't, you don't hear much about them. And the problem is uh, you don't hear about these people because, firstly, uh, the voice of the lower-ranking people in general do not really emerge in the primary sources we have and also uh, because uh, the prisoners who die have no voice at all. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Can we try and just drill into uh, into the practicalities of how this process might have happened a bit? And I don't know how far you you know this from uh, from the sources you've been able to study, but um, going into the battlefield, so there's a, there's a there's a bloody conflict going on. Do we know how somebody would actually be taken captive? How how might it have worked? Okay, uh, this is one of the, the slightly mystery. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a bit complicated, but we we can see we can read through sources uh, uh, that there are some rules which can help the system to work, which is to. Um, uh, you, you can read in, in places that uh, uh, touching the right uh, the right hand and uh, uh, asking for ransom uh, can be taken as a, a, a sign a, ge- a sign and a gesture that would be uh, understood as uh, um, in the the heat of the action as the prisoner as the the, the, the soldier uh, giving up and handing himself over to the to the his his enemy uh, so. There are, there are, yes, words and gesture, uh, which uh, uh, have been highlighted in the sources, which um, must have applied and 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 helped uh, to to take the prisoners in situation of battle. Um, uh, but it's still quite tricky to understand how it was because you still you you also have when the prisoner have given his hand you 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 have his life uh, in your hand and you are supposed to to protect the life of the prisoner at that point so you need to take him or him uh, outside of the but outside of the heat of the action uh, this 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 is problematic. If you are in a melee, in, right in the combat, how, how does that happen? So you can hear, you can, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, you can read uh, sometimes that valets are there and to help the knights and they take the, the prisoners and they will keep the prisoners outside the heat of the action. There are also other rules and that becomes very interesting because these are rules which are made uh, to avoid uh, to avoid the uh, the neutralization of the knights on the battlefield, is that um, once you have taken your prisoner, you take the word of the prisoner and you take a token which proves that you have uh, captured these prisoners, like a gauntlet or the sword. And this would be evidence in in a debate after the battle that he is your prisoner. And then you can go on fighting. Or you keep, and if the prisoners you've taken is put aside and his life is not in danger, that's uh, a prerequisite. But you can go on fighting, and there are other rules which um, uh, uh, which helped again the, the 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 combatants to go on fighting. Is that you can. Uh, if the prisoner is found on the battlefield and uh, with no security, and if somebody else found him, sometimes there are rules which uh, 
share the ransoms between the new uh, captor and the former captor. And then you have plenty of disputes uh, after battle because people are claiming he, I took him, but I took him after because he was left on the battlefield. So plenty of confusion. It's a it's a complicated bit, and it's quite hard to imagine how that would work, isn't it? As, as you say, in, in a melee, you, I mean, obviously, I've never fought in a in a fifteenth century battle, but but my my imagining is that it's a pretty busy, lively affair, and to have somebody sort of saying holding their hand up and then being escorted off to sit on the sidelines seems seems quite unlikely, doesn't it? But but there must have been, as you say, there must well, have been some mechanism for that to happen. So. Well, we, I mean. I think in terms, we focus on battles, but a lot of prisoners are taken outside situation of battles. What you can hear, you can read in the documents uh, is that, uh, uh, and you can imagine this is the place where the prisoners are taken, is once the victory is secured on the battlefield, uh, uh, there starts the hunt, the chase of the prisoners, the chase of the defeated. And it is at that point that uh, it becomes very dangerous in terms of casualties. You kill a lot of people like that. And you also captured a lot of prisoners. And actually, it's always been a very tricky business for the commanders, uh, the military commanders, to uh, uh, to deal with this uh, um, uh, permission to take prisoners because you can imagine how it can challenge the victory on the battlefield. So sometimes you have uh, uh, orders which are given by the commanders at the start that prisoners can be taken only once victory is plainly and obviously secured on the battlefield. And these ordinances, uh, uh, I have evidence of them and I don't know if I can make the link, but I think I'm, I'm really tempted to make it. I have two uh, um, evidence of or, of ordinances set, uh, uh, which set this clause. It's in 1417 and 1423. And you have references of this kind of thinking before, but what I found striking is that you have uh, um, uh, this evidence is this set of ordinances just after Agincourt, because at Agincourt, obviously, uh, all everybody knows about it. Prisoners were taken massively on the battlefield in the melee, uh, but then uh, the, the 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 French rearguard was about to launch a last assault, and Henry V ordered the prisoners to be killed. So I wonder if you can make a link uh, between like uh, between this uh, uh, new close in the ordinances in 1417-1423 with the memory and of the disaster of Agincourt and they didn't want that to happen again. So is it, it is what you're saying that the, sort of the, the very fact that it was possible that prisoners could be taken, did that change the way battles were conducted, change the way that leaders um, approach battles uh, and their, their tactics and strategy, I suppose? Um. Well, uh, yes, I think uh, I, they need to take that into account. Uh, uh, um, but in the development of tactics, I mean, when you read about the, the, the narrative of the battle, which we mostly have, we, know, we mostly know about tactic and strategy uh, through narrative sources, and they are not always very well informed. It's quite difficult to uh, make sense of things, uh, how things happen. When you read about that, they don't talk mostly about prisoners. You don't know how they include that uh, into their uh, their tactics. When you read the ordinances, uh, which, as I said, were supposed to be uh, issued before the battle and cried, you can hear that 
that they try to minimize the impact of the ransom business, but they never really completely suppress it. It's rare. At the beginning of the Hundred Years War, the Battle of Crecy, apparently there was a no quarter uh, ordered, uh, issued uh, on the French side, and then it was echoed by the English side. No prisoners would be taken. And uh, evidence about prisoners taken in, at Crecy are very, very little evidence, actually. Uh, so it mostly applied. But from the Battle of Poitiers in 1356 onwards, you don't have that kind of order. And when prisoners are killed on the battlefield, uh, it's because of emergency situation like Court. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so, uh, so going back into the detail a little bit, do we... Do we know very much about the um, the immediate uh, experience of a captured soldier after a battle? Presumably, they were in um, in quite a dangerous and unpleasant situation at that stage. Yes. Uh, so y- you mean after the capture, what happened to them until they are they are ransomed? So, as I said, mostly the aim is to derive a profit. Sometimes you also have exchange of prisoners. Uh, or if they can't pay their ransom, they are not necessarily killed. They could as well, uh, or rot in prison, they could as well uh, uh, start to serve or to change allegiance or to serve their master uh, in another way. Um, so it's, uh, uh, yeah, as you say, it must be a, a, a very tricky situation, especially if you are not a, a, a prince uh, or uh, somebody of really high, uh, higher ranking status. Uh, prisoners are the property as uh, the property of the master so they really they the prisoners are in charge the keeping of the prisoners uh, is in ch- uh, the responsibility of the master so if the host is traveling through enemy countries uh, he needs to take to keep and to make sure that prisoner does not escape and uh, stay with him and afterwards he needs to find a, a lodgement. Uh, uh, you find them a bit uh, everywhere uh, in the the, uh, the the gates of towns, in some prisons of towns, or they are kept in the house. Uh, uh, they are kept uh, uh, in, um, in in uh, castles for uh, when you look at uh, obviously the, the 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 prisoners of uh, ar- higher aristocratic status who are taken to England. A lot of French uh, spend quite a lot of time in quite beautiful re- residence there. But you also read about prisoners uh, being uh, thrown into dungeons, pits, being fettered, shackled, tortured. Um, uh, but you don't. You don't hear much about them. And the problem is uh, you don't hear about these people because, firstly, uh, the voice of the lower ranking people in general do not really emerge in the primary sources we have. And also uh, because uh, the prisoners who die have no voice at all. So it's it's actually quite quite tricky to, to see and fully grasp the the... the the bleak uh, future, the, the bleak situation in which they were. I have one interesting reference of, uh, w- w- which is quite bleak, uh, of uh, 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 one man who was hired as a torturer in a garrison. He was he was meant to uh, extract the high, the biggest uh, uh, ransom possible from the prisoner for them to agree uh, uh, the biggest possible ransom. So and and to torture them if they did not. 
Crikey, that's that's unpleasant. Um, okay, so so conditions uh, in which captives were held would have could have varied quite substantially, um, but presumably sometimes they could have been quite um, quite expensive or quite a burden on on the person who's uh, who's the master. Um, was that was that expense um, kind of expected to be borne by the prisoner at some point? Was it added to the ransom, um, or was that uh, was it just uh, a cost that was a, a an accepted part of the uh, of the process? Uh, it's actually in the in the uh, the sources. It's it's a big issue. Uh, the costs are meant to be covered by uh, the master um, of the prisoner uh, until he pays the ransom, and then you have calculation made. Uh, uh, to cover, uh, which includes um, the, the the time he has spent in captivity. So the, it's a, a added uh, a price to the ransom, and you can see that this become uh, this is set as a, a percentage of the ransom for the lower ranking prisoner, especially in the 15th century, which makes one think that the system is working very efficiently there because you don't want the prisoner uh, to, to spend too much money and, and uh, spend more than the percentage which is allotted to the uh, captivity of the prisoner. So, yes, it's a very uh, uh, regulated system. And then, okay, so... Let's let's move on a bit and let's assume that a, a ransom has been agreed um, through torture or some other some other mechanism. So that the, the the ransom has been agreed, uh, the person who is captive has the means to pay. How does how does the money actually get transferred? How does a process like that work in the Middle Ages? Um, well, so. What we know uh, is that a lot of prisoners actually raise the funds themselves. What happened, and it's mostly for prisoners of higher status, is that they are released on parole. They give the parole that they would come back to their prison with the amount of their ransom. And instead of them are put in prisons uh, hostages. And uh, the favorite hostage is the son, uh, the, the heir of the prisoner. Uh, or sometimes the wife, or sometimes you can see heralds uh, who enjoy some form of immunity of war playing a part in putting into connection the prisoner from his prison and the family and the connection of the prisoners outside the prison to raise the money. But mostly it is a private business and the prisoners are by themselves. Uh, they, are, uh, um, they, they are responsible to pay for their own time and they can't expect from the king to pay for the ransom. Um, uh, it's their responsibility. And uh, the king would only help his family and uh, mem possibly members of his household or, uh, or sometimes he, when he has interest in a particular individual. So, uh, yes, uh, it's working with this system of uh, hostages and as well uh, extra guarantee are taken by the master in terms of uh, a pledges, so people would act as pledge. Uh, several other uh, soldiers or uh, or lords or friends would act as pledge and uh, promise to pay or themselves to become prisoner if uh, they don't uh, um, uh, if they don't pay instead of the prisoner if the prisoner default. 
Okay. You made a very interesting point just then about uh, the uh, the moral obligation or otherwise of the monarch to to do anything about the these ransoms. So basically you're saying there's no moral or a presumably legal obligation for the for the king to do anything about the circumstances of these ransomed uh, these hostage uh, prisoners even though they were they were fighting for that for that monarch that's you know they they were in that king's service. So but there's no there's no comeback there. No, I think what what you need to understand is they uh, uh, this this combatants fight in the Middle Ages and, and the armies of the Hundred Years' War as individuals, and rights are secured by them as uh, uh, by them and against them, and their duties are secured by and against them as uh, 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 individuals. They are not; it's not a state matter. Um, so. You can quite understand that with the system of prisoner of war because the king allows uh, uh, to gain money from the ransom. So when you are taken, you have the misfortune to be taken prisoner, uh, you need to pay for your ransom. And actually this all private ransom business, the English king derives a profit from it. He levies a taxation on ransoms. So it's a, a system... Uh, which shows the extent to which individual combatants fight as individuals and not as under the responsibility of the state. And as well, how officialized it is and how the state derives profit from the situation. Okay. Um, I think when I was reading one of your articles, you, um, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, there were some occasions that you found of uh, individuals being uh, ransomed or having their ransoms paid by groups of their friends or or peers in their in their army or army units or whatever they were fighting. Is that true? Was there was were, were some people basically ransomed by their friends? And if so, what does that tell us about medieval friendship and band of brothers in 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 the Middle Ages? If that's a thing. Um, yes, the, the, this is true. You can have, um, uh, I think the, the best example uh, is in the late uh, Middle Ages in 15, 1454. Uh, you have an example uh, where uh, Charles VII asks for all the captains to, uh, 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 to sacrifice a part of their pay uh, to uh, ransom the prisoners, uh, their fellow uh, captains who were taken prisoners. But it's an initiative of the Crown. Um, and uh, initiative of captains and friends, you don't have many evidence. Um, it's mostly family. Uh, in terms of captains and the fellow combatants, you have, well, you mentioned the brother in arms, you have actually the, the contract, one evidence of a contract of brotherhood in arms. And in this contract, this is a fascinating document, uh, a contract made by two esquires uh, when they are, uh, they are quite new to the business of war. They are arriving in France in 1421 and they seal a contract by which... Um, uh, they uh, promise to help each other in case of uh, them being ransomed and they promise to share the profits uh, if they manage to take prisoners. You have a lot of these associations throughout the Hundred Years' War. The problem is that it's not often that you see this, that these associations are really uh, pr uh, promoting solidarity between them. It's more associations which are made on the spot uh, in, spec in particular circumstances to share the profits. 
but that uh, it's about greed there and uh, about to make sure that you you will have your share of the profit. It's less less far less evidence about uh, the share uh, of the the the. the uh, the the problems which comes with the, the being captured and uh, to pay the ransom, not the risk. You don't share the risks. Um, okay, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, uh, so our listeners can uh, can find out a bit more about this by um, looking for your for your journal articles, but that would require access to to learner journals. Um, but you've, you have your book, which um, which is available, and uh, your thesis is uh, is is accessible online. I, I see, and there are a couple of articles uh, on the BBC website that uh, that report on some of your uh, lines of research. Um, uh, Dr. Remy Ambul from uh, the University of Southampton. Thank you very much for your time. That was Remy Amble from the University of Southampton. His book, Prisoners of War in the Hundred Years' War, is published by Cambridge University Press. You can also read a feature on Remy's research on our website at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Friday when Guy Bowman will be discussing the forgotten Muslim soldiers of Dunkirk. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.